About 275,000 people live in my old hometown of Buffalo, New York. If you count the metropolitan area, it's just over a million. One of the richest owners of an NFL team, somebody that Forbes magazine says has more than $5 billion, wants the city of Buffalo to pony up half a billion dollars, or about $500 a person, to build a new stadium for him in Orchard Park, New York. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about just how easy it is to game some systems. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. This is Grant Sanders. Money is not the solution to every problem. Take, for example, the island of Nantucket, where I live. There's a lot of wealth here, but we also have many difficult social issues to solve. And that's why I created the Nantucket Owner's Manual, a guide to leaving the island better than we found it. The Owner's Manual is a peer-reviewed publication using digital technology to get ideas out into the community. My hope is to use it as a blueprint to create something called the Community Owner's Manual so we can guide others to solve problems in their communities. It's a passion project. It does have a Patreon page. And you can learn more at NantucketOwnersManual.com. As usual, this is a podcast I rant about status roles and affiliation. But it's told through the lens of organized sports. Stadiums, according to the Brookings Institution, pay off for cities about as well as one or two large supermarkets. So let me say that again. A big supermarket in the right place in a city will create as much economic benefit as a stadium that costs hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars. How can this be? Well, how can it not be? Because, first of all, the stadium's only used if it's for football seven or eight times a year. When it is used, only 60, in the case of Buffalo, 80,000 people show up, a tiny percentage of the population. The people who do show up might pay for parking, which goes to the team and maybe the lease. They might buy some popcorn or warm pizza, but that's just keeping them from buying dinner someplace else in town. The people who work for the team, some of them, a few of them, get paid a bazillion dollars, but they don't live in town and they don't spend their bazillion dollars all at once. The rest of the people who work there, a lot of them are part-time because, after all, it's only open eight or nine days a year. Building it? Well, yes, building it created some jobs and economic activity, but not for a lot of people. On the other hand, a couple supermarkets, if you think about how many people walk through that building, if you think about how it enriches the lives of people who are able to get fresh food at a good price, if you think about the fact that it can be a cornerstone of a neighborhood 24 hours a day, seven days a week, there's really no comparison. And on top of that, you don't have to issue tax-free bonds to enable a supermarket to get built because supermarkets are businesses and the people who own those businesses are able to raise money from investors who get paid because the business does well. That's not what happens with a professional sports team. It's definitely not what happens with the Olympics. Instead, 
a different business model has arisen, that there are only a finite number of teams. And for the teams that are seen as being in the bottom half of desirable cities, there's constantly an auction going on. So Portland says, oh, we could sure use a team. And they start looking around for places like Buffalo, the second smallest city that has the football team, and saying, you know, your stadium's not looking that good. Why don't you come here? And then there are countless consulting firms that will work for a billionaire who runs the bills to issue a report, in this case, saying that it would be worth more than $300 million a year to the Buffalo economy to keep the bills in a new stadium. How do you do that kind of math? You just make it up. Because reputable economists have been showing for decades that, in fact, it doesn't make any difference at all. Here's a quote from the Brookings Report, which was included in their book, Sports, Jobs, and Taxes. No recent facility appears to have earned anything approaching a reasonable return on investment. No recent facility has been self-financing in terms of its impact on net tax revenues. Regardless of whether the unit of analysis is a local neighborhood, a city, or an entire metropolitan area, the economic benefits of sports facilities are de minimis. Now, it's important to note that cities do things for reasons that have nothing to do with economics, and there's nothing wrong with that. That it is entirely appropriate for somebody to go to a city and say, you should spend a lot of money, $500 or more per citizen, because it'll make you feel good. Because that's really what's on offer. But it's hidden behind this veneer that it's actually a smart economic choice, when it clearly is not. So why do people want to do it at all? Well, status roles. It's nice for some people to be from a city that's famous because they have a famous sports team, because their sports team won a big prize. This is particularly clear in Europe, where people love football, the kind that we call soccer here in the US, so much because it is directly connected to their identity as a citizen and as a fan. The question that prompted this rant. My question actually comes out of my most recent visit to Buffalo, where I spent Christmas this year. My boyfriend's dad was telling me about the likely possibility of the Buffalo Bills getting a new stadium. Also ended with this little aside. Thanks for the time and go Patriots. Which, no, I did not miss, but I got it. I smiled. Because if you're a Patriots fan, you're not a Bills fan. Now, I stopped being a Bills fan a really long time ago. I stopped watching football completely a really long time ago. But I used to go to the games all the time growing up. And there was something about going to downtown Buffalo to the original stadium and seeing this thing happen, this public spectacle. And when it was in downtown Buffalo, it brought a whole bunch of people from the suburbs back to the city at a time when Buffalo really needed that to happen. It needs it now more than ever, but they're not proposing to build a stadium in the city, even though it would expose suburbanites to the city that they are ostensibly attached to, which might make them a little bit more eager to help people who need their help. 
But no, it's scheduled to be way out in the boonies. Okay, so back to this idea of status roles. There are the status roles that come from having a luxury box and the status roles that come from having season's tickets. But for all of the fans who are 100 times more likely to not go to a game than go to a game, that 100x group of people, there is a point of pride that comes from seeing the name of the place where they live attached to the name of the team. Now, it's interesting because only 60 miles away from Buffalo is a place called Rochester. Rochester, home of Kodak, home of Xerox. At one time, one of the cities that had the highest number of millionaires per capita of any city in the United States, Rochester has also struggled post-industrial age. But it's interesting to note that Rochester doesn't struggle more than Buffalo because it doesn't have a football team. And it's entirely possible to be a loyal citizen of Rochester, even though there is no baseball team. So with that said, one of the things that we're talking about with status roles are the idea that the fan, the proponent, the person in government, the one who keeps the team, their status goes up. And the other half of that is affiliation. Who is next to us? Who is cheering with us? That if you go to see a Pittsburgh Penguins game, an indoor stadium always louder than an outdoor one, with every single person wearing the team jersey, all chanting side by side, yes, affiliation is also created. Which then leads to the conversation of status roles and affiliation for the critic. Because if the critic shows up and says, this is economically foolish, we are much better off investing taxpayer money in all sorts of things that would improve education, well-being, quality of life, and economic upsides, well, that person can be easily brought down by folks who say, why are you giving away the status that we so desperately need? Buffalo's one quarter the size it used to be, and now you want to take away our football team? Not only that, but it will hurt one's affiliation in the community as you seek, apparently, to bring down status. So what is to be done to keep the system from getting so easily gamed? Because stadium after stadium and league after league is pulling the same stunt. Well, it seems to me that the coordinated efforts of the monopoly, the owners of each of these teams, needs to be countered by a coordinated effort by mayors and governors, or whatever they call mayors and governors where you live. And it seems pretty simple to me that the next time the Olympics come around, the next time the football people come around, the next time the baseball people come around, well, all the cities and all the towns and all the states and all the countries have made a deal with each other. They have made a deal with each other that they will not spend more than X to keep a team. And it's a binding contract with penalties associated with it. That if all the cities and all the towns and all the states did that together, where exactly are the teams going to go? Because there isn't a better offer anywhere else. So that's my idea of applying a little bit of game theory to what's going on when people are tweaking status roles and affiliation, not in the interest of the taxpayers who end up paying for this. So yeah, if you want to go to a football game, I think it's a great idea and you should pay for it. But I'm not sure that money should come out of any other budget of citizen-funded efforts. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I would say go Bills, but I don't watch football anymore.
We'll see you. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question about just about anything, or even a previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Two questions this week, sort of far afield, probably with controversial answers. Here we go. Hey, Seth, this is Kaysen from the USA. I recently began working as a financial advisor, and since I'm new, part of that includes reaching out to family and friends and letting them know what it is that I'm doing and how I can help them. Although I've recently realized in some of my conversations, it it seems that people might perceive that I view them as strictly dollar signs or another way to just make money off of them. And that couldn't be further from the truth, and it's really quite hurtful at times. So my question is, is there something that I can say or help communicate that I, I am really excited to share with them what it is that I do and how I can help them and be a resource without them feeling like I'm just trying to sell them something? Thanks for your help. Thank you for this, Kaysen, and I feel the enthusiasm and vulnerability in your voice. I'm not sure you're going to love my answer, but here you go. Turns out there are a few lines of work that have millions and millions of people in them in which the first rule once you get into that line of work is that you're supposed to go and sell your family and friends. That certainly is the way multi-level marketing works. It's the way real estate brokers are supposed to look for listings, and it is key to the way that they take financial planners and move them through a career path. There's a problem. And the problem is you're not really doing it because you want to help your cousin for two reasons. The first one is you are not the best in the world at this. One day you might be the best in the world at this, but right now you're not. So you're going to someone you care about and you're saying, I'm just learning how to do this. Can I be generous to you and do it for you, for money? And when it's said like that, it's pretty clear 
the most generous thing to do would be to refer them to the person who's the best in the world at it. Or possibly do it completely and totally for free. Say to them, I'm learning a lot and I can look at your Vanguard account and without you paying me a penny, without building my book of business, which will benefit me, I can give you some free advice based on what I've learned, staking my reputation, but getting no upside whatsoever. That is a gift. I am being generous to you by offering that to you. But when we go to people who we are related to and we try to sell them something to start our career, it's easy to persuade ourselves that we're being generous and to be hurt when they say no thank you. But in fact, what we're doing is dating our cousin. It's not a level playing field. That for me, if you want to be a professional, get business from people you don't know. Earn business from people, not because you're sort of related to them, but because you have something to offer them. Because the problem with treating your relatives as customers is if it all goes sideways, they're still going to be your relatives, which means that one of you is going to have to deal with the fact that it didn't go as well as it could have, but you're still relatives. That's different than the transaction you have to earn and maintain with a stranger. So financial planners are capable of adding a lot of value for some people in certain circumstances. But I want to encourage you to stand up straight and be a professional and not need your cousin to get you started. Because there are plenty of ways that you can show up in the world to earn trust, the benefit of the doubt, without having it based on who your grandparents were. Hi, Seth. It's Tom from the UK. Long-term listener to your show. Uh, <clears throat> I've got a kind of philosophical question for you here. So I think freedom is one of the things that makes people universally happy, whether that's creative, financial, uh, or just freedom within nature and just the choice to be free. But quite often we find in our work that we're constrained by responsibility. So the thing that I always think about is with my business, I have to go on Instagram all the time and answer questions. And there's a kind of lack of freedom in knowing that I have to answer those people and I can't just leave it and go off and hike around a mountain. Uh, but the reason I'm doing that is so that I can then get financial freedom. Um, but it's, I wonder if you had any advice on how you can, in a modern world, find freedom within the constraints of a modern kind of uh, economic, economy. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Thanks for this, Tom. And once again, we're dancing around with semantics. Here's an interesting question. When we look at people who are high performers in the sense that they've made plenty of money and built a reputation, whether that person is a heart surgeon or she's a financial planner, how come they don't quit? How come when I was at Yahoo and surrounded by people who had millions and millions and millions of dollars, they didn't all quit? Why is it that when people have a certain sort of responsibility, they keep doing it, even though they will never be able to spend the money they already have? Jeff Bezos' yacht, which is absurdly big, is also something he's only going to use a few days a year because he's busy with a day job. Why does he even need a day job? I think the answer comes to our understanding of the word freedom 
and its sister responsibility. Because responsibility is for many people not toxic, but in fact a bonus, a treat, a chance to be trusted, a chance to do work that matters, a chance to show up where you are needed. And no, that's not the same as playing golf and being retired, but they're different sorts of freedom. The freedom to bring ideas into the world, the freedom to speak up, lean in, change things. That's different than freedom from. Freedom from responsibility, freedom from being asked or required to do something. And different people want different things, partly because of how we're indoctrinated, partly how our culture works, partly could be due to our makeup. And finding our lane so that we can spend our days doing the work we want to do is an extraordinary privilege, relatively brand new, available to more people than ever before. Not enough people, still based on caste, still based on people being judged for things that are out of their control. But yes, there are a billion or more people on this planet who get to make choices. That had never happened before. The choices always come with responsibility. You have the freedom to have an ice cream sundae for lunch, but it comes with the responsibility of dealing what it will do to your body this afternoon. And if you want to run a business, maybe you're running a business to make money, but I think that's unlikely because if you want to maximize the money you're making, you'd go to work in some grueling job for an investment bank, moving piles of money from one place to another and taking a little bit all day as you did it. Not a lot of people do that. The people who do, I hope, are in it for the money because that's what they're getting. But for the rest of us, there is the freedom to make a difference, and that takes many forms. Thanks for letting me rant about this. We'll see you next time. It's not too late. Hey, it's Seth. About 16 years ago, I wrote my first post about climate change. And since then, every single metric has gotten worse. But it's not too late. What we need to do is shift it from a me problem to a we problem. And my new project is not my new project. It's our new project. More than 300 volunteers from 40 countries around the world have spent the last bunch of months putting together the Carbon Almanac. It's not coming out till June, but you, my loyal Akimbo listeners, I wanted you to see it and hear about it. First, check out thecarbonalmanac.org for all the details. Thank you for caring enough to make a difference.